Hi, everybody. Hi. I'm sorry to be a little late. I just all kinds of snafus, <laughs> nothing serious. But I've been here. It's perfect. Um, eager to be here tonight. This is, you know, a really special place, as so many of you know. And I feel like I, I grew as, up as a writer in many ways here. And I was working on that book in 2014. Um, and uh, this, this just was a, a magical time. So I'm very pleased to be here. And um, yeah, it feels always like coming home. So I want to kind of break up the reading a little bit tonight. And I'm going to read from three pieces. And I'm going to start kind of, I'm going to go chronologically. And I'm going to read um, from a little bit from Black as a Body. And this is for Sarah. We are, um, you know, kind of consumed with the same very human story. Um, and so, Sarah, this is about being in conversation with you and gratitude for all you've, all you've made possible over the years. You know, you're such a valuable part of this. And can we just have a round of applause for Sarah and all she does? Thank you. Ever modest. Um, okay, so this is from an essay called Motherland. And it's the story of going to Ethiopia to launch our family. Um, and I'm just going to read a little bit in the middle. So my daughters, so you know, were born in a town called Adigrat, um, which is in the Tigray region. And I have to say something. There is currently a, a civil war, something tantamount to a genocide going on in Ethiopia and right now. And one reason we May, you may not know about it is because there's been a media blackout. Um, and it's a sort of terrible and a story that's taken some bizarre twix, twists and turns. I feel extremely fortunate to have a relationship with my daughter's family, their siblings, and in particular one sister. So um, I'm able to hear a little bit um, about it, but you know, certainly I think some of you in the room know ab about it. And, um, but this is just an honor of, of this family that, that you know, I am forever and happily bound to. It is 6.30 a.m. in Adigrat. Our driver, driver Girma, takes us slowly along the rough, packed earth. The mountains in front of us have seen everything. Their outlines are so precise, they seem like cutouts in the sky. We drive slowly as the road thins and then disappears, as if it has surrendered to the commanding natural landscape around us. Our adoption agent, Helen, had told us the road would end and we would have to walk for an hour to meet the girls and their family. Another agent, Marjorie, dismissed this information as another one of Helen's fantastic stories. <laughs> Girma pulls the car to a gentle stop among small bunches of beaver tail cactus with stems as wide and flat as paddles and decorated with bristles like stubble on a man's face. There are only three yards between us, but the men's voices sound tinny and far away. Underneath my feet, the earth is as light and packed as brown sugar. Within arm's reach is a small island of green bordered by a layer of rocks. In its center stands a tree with a thin trunk and a flowering crown, like a tall, skinny kid with an afro. In the distance, more trees, some dense and willowy, stand in a line on faded, cracked earth. The sky is thick with all the blue left in the world. I nearly trip on titanic pieces of shale. My boots catch in the valley of crevices between them. The sun quickly discovers the skin beneath my hair, hat, and the rest of my clothing. 
I feel its piercing impact in my joints and lungs. If we had been in the States, if we were anywhere else, I would have been preoccupied with how soon I could seek out a piece of shade under which to hide. But here, even as I stoop, stumble, and trudge my way forward, I begin to understand that beneath this piercing sun and breathtaking sky is exactly where I belong. Everything lies in front of me, nothing is behind. There is no shelter, nowhere to hide. This sun, it may be relentless, but it is glorious too evaporating any doubt about the road ahead. I stand up straight. The heat is not something to shun, I decide, but only something else to carry. As we approach a group of thatched huts topped with perfect cylinders of long grass, my heart beats so rapidly that I reflexively cover it with my hand. I smooth my shirt and adjust my hat. I hope I look like what the family wants for their twins. As we are greeted by the people to whom the girls belong, I imagine a woman being presented to a groom at the inauguration of an arranged marriage. Be prepared to be treated like royalty, Helen had written in an unusually helpful email. Indeed, the girl's family has slaughtered a sheep in our honor. A large platter of the roasted sheep meat sits on a clay table. The loaf of bread we bought in Edigrat is placed on the side. Everyone gathers to eat, but after a few token bites, I sit back on a bench molded from the same clay as a table and walls of the wide circular room. I try to arrange my features into an expression that communicates my appreciation for the food, my desire to enjoy it, and my inability to do so. I'm not successful. It is clear from the quality of the murmurs. Emily doesn't like it, our translator Burhanu says, and smiles sympathetically. I can tell he is trying to translate the disappointment I have caused. It is terrible to know that I'm failing to demonstrate the boundless depth of the gratitude I feel for everyone in this room. A torrent of emotions clogs my throat. My palms sweat and tingle. I'm rigid with anticipation, eager for the wonderful, terrible moment in which the girls will be placed in our arms. Beside me, John eats heartily and drinks sheep's milk from a tin cup. It's my husband, John. He's eating a lot in this book. <laughs> I cannot say no when the milk is offered to me. I feel multiple pairs of interested eyes on me as I bring the cup to my mouth. The twins' grandmother brings out the baby we will know as Isabella. She is wrapped in the same light blue quilted outfit that she wears in a picture that Helen sent months ago. Her grandmother, a slight woman with a lightly wrinkled face, stands in a space that separates two rooms of the family home. The sky shines a movie star light down on the two of them. Isabella regards me dispassionately as she takes in the entire scene. Julia emerges mid-whale. She is afraid because she has never seen white skin, Berhanu says, and gently touches John's arm. Julia continues to cry as we stand outside the compound and are presented with carrots so bright and large they could serve as props in a Bugs Bunny cartoon. I was reminded of these carrots yesterday when we had these beautiful bright carrots at our meal. John gathers us together for a photograph before we begin the trek back to the Land Rover. The return hike feels more arduous, the sun hotter, the air drier. I'm trying not to show my exhaustion. The grandmother has a swaddled Isabella strapped to her back. Her steps are light and efficient on veins of rock 
that protrude from the earth. I walk next to one of the baby's cousins, a girl of 11 or 12. Her eyes are large and kind. The braids in her hair shine. She wears Julia, who seems to be dozing, on her back, underneath a cloth secured to her faded green dress. We take turns looking at each other and then looking away before the other one catches us. There is so much I want to ask and tell her, but the membrane of language, fine and opaque at once, travels with us like a mobile glass partition. Even though it feels a bit silly, the next time I sense her looking, I meet her gaze, and for the second time today, put my hand over my heart. I press down hard. When she looks away, she is still smiling. You're part of our family now, an older male cousin tells us, but that's it for goodbyes. John and I are hustled into the car, whose rumbling engine inspires more caterwauling from Julia. The babies are shuffled around. I hold Julia, who screams and stares at me with tears cascading from her eyes. Isabella rests quietly in John's lap, snug in the nest of his arms and chest. Suddenly she sits open and opens her mouth, sits up and opens her mouth slightly. Sheep's milk spills out of her tiny body. <laughs> Julia follows suit. Before her second round, I take my hat and turn it upside down under her chin. A rare moment of good enough mothering in these 16 years. Three, three hours later, we have become almost used to the smell and the feeling of our daughter's vomit caked on our clothing. We are sticky with heat and sweat and bodily fluids by the time we arrive at the airport in Mekalay. John leaves the girls with me while he rushes to the bathroom to clean out my hat and rinse Isabella's excretions from his shirt. With a baby tucked into the crook of each arm, I sink into a plastic chair. My dizziness and blurry vision must be a result of the heat, I think. An older woman wearing a black hijab sits down next to me. She holds her arms open. I hand her Julia, and she pulls a small blanket from her belongings and hands it to me. She and John each take one of my arms when it's time to board. I still feel rickety as we walk towards the plane, but I have a firm grip on Isabella, who emerges from the cloth on my shoulder as slowly as a plant sprouting from the earth in a time-lapse video. She stretches her neck like a periscope and pivots her head slowly, a stern look on her face. Like a general assessing a battlefield or Magellan surveying the Atlantic, I think. And when she smiles, I believe we are sharing our first private joke. <laughs> Julia has decided that it is my particular job to tend to her, so John and I trade babies once we are seated. She and I fall asleep quickly after takeoff. A few minutes later, a wave of pain propels me out of my seat and toward the bathroom. Along the way, I shove a miserable, indignant Julia into the arms of a pretty flight attendant. I'm on my hands and knees, in the throes of thudding, seizing abdominal pain, where the attendant knocks on the door. As soon as I undo the latch, she snatches the door open. I look up. She is stony. I am perpendicular. Madam, your baby, she sniffs and presents me with Julia, who looks down at me with what appears to be alarm on her 12-month-old face. Um, two things. We find out Julia later had an ear infection and if it's not clear, I was, as I write, I'm 
my stomach was in a losing war against bacteria from the sheep's milk. <laughs> so that was an interesting baptism. Okay, so I want to move now from, um, from this book to um, a piece I wrote. It um, came out during you know, the, the kind of the nucleus, if you will, of the pandemic and those early stages of panic when we didn't know very much. Not that we know much more now, but this is called a pr The Purpose of a House. And it was in the New Yorker and it looks like June 25th, 2020. I'm going to start kind of in the middle. Um, I think the context will be clear. I was trying to keep everything under control inside the walls that surround me. When my twin daughter's school went remote, there was some relief in having them home all the time. They are 14 at the time of this piece, recent graduates of eighth grade. Born in Ethiopia, they became US citizens when we adopted them as infants. Middle school was difficult for both of my girls. Let's just say that they have emerged from these years with a keen appreciation of the way that racism works in subtle and not so subtle ways in liberal communities. Over the past three years, I became one of those parents. I had the time and the resources, the autonomy at my job to meet with teachers and administrators when my daughters and I agreed that such meetings were necessary. My background as an academic and a child of professionals makes me bold when it comes to most encounters with authority figures particularly at school, so I was not intimidated when I had to intervene on my children's behalf on several occasions. This was something my mother had to do for me and my brothers. For some of the same reasons, 40 years ago, in the slowly desegregating South, I shook my head grimly when I noted the enduring similarities between our experiences, but we soldiered on, as black people do, and I was glad for the lessons in perseverance and valuing yourself no matter what others white people thought lessons that my mother gave me that I could now pass on to my children. I could see a noticeable difference in my daughter's demeanor after the first couple of weeks at home. I read an article about how other black children were thriving in remote learning, not having to deal with the race-related struggles that they endured in school. I thought this applied to my girls, so there was some sort of silver lining after all. The purpose of a house is to keep the outside world out, our contractors told us. We moved into our home five years ago. If it weren't for the need to walk my dog, I would spend most of my every day inside, not only because of the lockdown. Three years in, five years in I should say, and I'm still constantly aware of my dark skin in this affluent, predominantly white neighborhood, even though most of my neighbors have been nothing but outwardly welcoming to me and my family. When I wrote on social media about living and working as a black person in white spaces, particularly during the lockdown and the international uprising against racism and police violence, neighbors I hardly know, like the post, expressed compassion and pledged a new awareness. When I walk my dog these days, I am most often alone on the roads of my neighborhood. I like it that way. I can walk without my mask, free from the fear of contagion, and I wonder about the neighbors who express those sentiments of welcome from behind all of these closed doors and shut windows. Can they see me now? I was glad to be able to keep my children safe from more demoralizing experiences at school. Still memories crept in. 
It was as if not to have to deal with, with it in the day-to-day, -day, my daughters were suddenly free to experience their wounds in a deep way for the first time. Three years of being one of the very few black children in her classrooms had left Isabella feeling both hyper-visible and invisible, a jarring and alienating experience many black people know well. Now that she was at home with her parents, she told me, even her guidance counselors, good witches, felt like an intrusion. I asked Isabella's teachers to leave her be. For Julia, I arranged a restorative justice session with a teacher who, after some education, had acknowledged the ways in which he had harmed her. When students made fun of her hair, he blamed her. When a group of boys mocked her for wearing a t-shirt that read, the future is female, she felt that her teacher did not effectively stand up for her. Julia had thrived in spite of him, emerging as a leader and guiding discussions in his classroom about racism and sexism. My daughters were suffering from the echoes of their three years in middle school. Their days inside were still and peaceful. The memories were dynamic and vivid. Communication as a road to healing was something I believed in, something I knew I needed to model if I wanted them to believe in it too. Human connection, meaning, making meaning out of suffering, breaking down barriers, and insisting on a common humanity through truth-telling. And then George Floyd died, and the world was, once again, invited to watch the destruction of a black human being. The video was made by a courageous teenage black girl. It was a triumphant, essential act, and one that will likely cost her for the rest of her life. I knew there were videos. I was glad there were videos. I did not and would never watch a video of anyone's murder. We are all indebted to the courageous witnesses among us. Yet no one should have been able to watch George Floyd die, expect, except people who loved him and God. To know of the murders, to know of all the murders, to know that there are more than you even know about, so many kept hidden, so many human beings disappeared. To feel them, to let them in, and then the need to protect my children, not only for their, for their sake, but for the sake of their family in Ethiopia who entrusted them to us. To keep the badness of the world, of the outside world out and cultivate goodness inside these walls, decorated with a gallery of images meant to uphold and reinforce our family bond. To teach my girls compassion, to model for my community, to represent my people, to honor my ancestors, the prongs of faith and duty, two sides of a bridle. I want to finish by um, reading the prologue, I think, to my upcoming book, uh, which is called Upcoming, which I'm writing. <laughs> um, you know this drill. It's called, um, the book is called Unfinished Women, and I'd be thrilled to try to <laughs> explain it or talk about it in our Q&A, but um, this is the prologue to Unfinished Woman. After months of pleading, negotiating, and planning, Julia Davis gets on a plane to Mississippi one morning and arrives in Vermont in the afternoon. 
When I pick her up at the airport, I'm amazed, as always, by how much she resembles her older sister, Clara Jean, my mother. The same large brown eyes and shapely lips. As we gather her luggage, we reflect on the fact that my mother has been dead for almost a decade. I've always felt close to my aunt, who, at 70, is younger than my mother by 11 years. Clara Jean had three younger sisters, but Julia, from a young age, I could see that she was open to the world in a way I wanted to be, that she was willing to entertain all of what life had to offer. Her sister went into the military. My mother became a housewife. Another sister stayed in Mississippi. But Julia led out to California, having one adventure after the next, or so it seemed to me as a child. We've visited her once. I'll never forget a walk we took along the pier in San Francisco, the sparkling view of the Golden Gate Bridge, and the grim, imposing silence of Alcatraz. I was 14. My aunt is half of her usual self, I note, as we arrange her bags in my trunk. Depression, she says simply when I remark on her dramatic weight loss. Julia left California to go home to Mississippi after my grandmother, having grown weaker and weaker from a succession of strokes, could no longer take care of herself. My grandmother, Dotsie, was ready to die at 94, but the preceding few years under Julia's care had been very difficult for both of them. Dotsie's decline was hard, and Julia had no experience as a caretaker. Not one to complain, Julia doesn't talk much about the experience, but I know it was debilitating for her too. Once, during an emotional conversation after her mother's death, my brothers and I insisted that she move in with one of us if she, too, lost the power to take care of herself. She said, you have no idea what you're offering to give up. She put her face in her hands and sobbed. It is October. As we drive to my house, I watch Julia as she takes in the Vermont fall from her window. The true distance between Burlington, Vermont, and Hazelhurst, Mississippi cannot be measured in miles. The lie is that we live in one country and one culture, a united story of the United States. We pass small, white, clabbered churches with tall, slender steeples. It's 60 degrees outside, but people are wearing shorts. How foreign this must be, I think. I look around for black people, thinking that the sight of a brown body would put my aunt at ease. In this moment, I forget that Julia has traveled outside of the country more than most Americans. For years, she had a boyfriend in Jamaica whom she saw regularly. During her career as a programmer at Pacific Bell, she navigated plenty of majority white spaces. I underestimated my aunt. People have been doing that all her life. Julia was in elementary school when my mother left for college. She was a teenager when Clara Jean disappointed their father profoundly and forever by getting married a few years after graduation into a foreigner, no less. An army captain, my grandfather, Julius Jefferson, called Jeff, was not a feminist, but my grandmother gave him no sons. Jeff wanted more for his oldest born daughter than wife. You paid all of that money for Clara Jean's education and all she did was up and get married. <laughs> Jeff's brother chastised him. My mother would later sometimes regret her marriage, but she would never have given my grandfather the satisfaction of telling him so. Clara Jean married as an act of defiance. She hated her father, who was an alcoholic, resented the way he foisted his own dreams upon her. 
Jeff lost all interest in his other daughters after my mother disobeyed him. He retired from the military to his living room, where he sat silent in the dark and watched television, a bottle at his feet. Julia, his namesake, felt for him. Even though he neglected her, and despite the forbidding, dense shadow he cast inside the house, she felt his humanity. Whenever Jeff entered a room, the two youngest girls would leave in protest, but Julia stayed. She sat in the dark with the lonely man, so pitifully out of sync with his own family, and kept him company while he immersed himself in westerns and sports. That's why I'm a diehard LA Rams fan to this day, she told me. My aunt was so young when my mother left home that I know things that she does not remember about her own childhood. She doesn't remember, for instance, that my grandfather could be a violent drunk. She doesn't remember how viciously her parents fought and that her mother sometimes hid from her father when he was on a bender. What Julie doesn't remember, my mother never forgot. Clara Jean carried her rage toward her father to the very end of her life. Looking back, I believe that rage was the defining feature of her life. The disgust my mother felt for her father fueled her creative imagination. I know about those terrible times not only from what she told me, but from the way she rendered those experiences in her poems. Jeff, a lifelong depressive, a malignant husband, army captain, handsome and magnetic, a poor excuse for her father, a sad, lonely man brooding in the dark, a lover of westerns and football, a source of literary inspiration. He was all of these things we know, and many things we may never know. The same is true for everyone. There are so many ways of looking at a life. By the time when Julia steps out of her, the car, my daughters are halfway down the driveway to greet her. My husband, John, takes her bags up to her room, and we all visit for a bit until Julia says she'd like to stretch her legs after the long airplane ride. John offers to accompany her on a walk around the neighborhood. Later, Julia tells me that on their walk, John confided to her some of his worries about one of our daughter's performance in school. Julia was impressed that he cared. You have to expect things from children, she told him. She knows this from hard experience. Julia spent her childhood in Hazelhurst contending not only with her father's neglect, but also her mother's deprecation. The other girls have that Jefferson smarts, her mother would say to her, but you're dumb like me. Julia suffered from what today would probably be described as a learning disability. Regardless, she stopped trying in school. I bought into it. She tells me about her mother's diagnosis. When it was time for standardized testing, Julia didn't even look at the questions. She sat at her desk and penciled in random cells on the answer sheet. Julia left Hazelhurst at the first opportunity. Her father had a son, Ken, from a previous relationship who was living in San Jose. Julia could live with him, his wife, and three kids for a while, Ken said, while she attended community college. Julia loved her life in San Jose, even though Ken's wife was difficult to take. She treated Julia like a bumpkin, acted shocked when Julia used the word avocado in a sentence. Mm -hmm. She didn't believe that the country girl from a tiny town could possibly know what an avocado was, so she made Julia point one out at a grocery store. True to form, Julia kept her hurt hidden and focused on the bright side of things. After all, she was in California, a world away from Mississippi, and she was meeting people from all walks of life. Among those people was a talented, 
good-looking young baseball player who would become her husband. You're dumb like me. Despite her excitement over how things were unfolding, the cruel words from her old life crept back into her head and took up residence in her heart. She did not love the gifted baseball player. Other people admired him, though, and she didn't think she could do much better anyway. The fact that he didn't love her either did not register as a problem. She was used to disappointment when it came to matters of the heart. And Julia dropped out of college and got married. She thought she could replicate the domestic life her sister Clara Jean was living. She did not know that her oldest sister's story was also full of holes. Julia's marriage ended disastrously. It was one of those situations when you leave with the clothes on your back, she said. Her husband, she discovered quickly, had been practicing economic deceit for years. By the time she got out of marriage, there was nothing left. Still, good things kept happening. She got a job at the phone company, Pacific Bell. She decided she wanted to become a programmer. It looked like interesting work, like solving a puzzle, she explains. In order to develop the necessary skills to be competitive for such a position, she apprenticed herself to a manager in the field, an intimidating grouch. She chose him as a mentor over others who were easier to get along with. Why? He knew what he was doing, and I knew how to handle him, she told me. You had a lot of experience dealing with difficult people who had power over you, I said. Earning the esteem of a cantankerous man gave her as much pleasure as a new talent she was developing. Julia was an excellent programmer. The company rewarded her with a lucrative salary that, salary that helped her recover, for the most part, from the financial damage wrought by her ex-husband. She traveled to Jamaica where she met a man. She and Walter took trips all over the Caribbean. It was a period of reinvention, but she could never free herself from the tug of the old story. You're dumb like me. Her grumpy mentor wanted to promote her, but she declined. With a kind of bewildered sadness, Julia realized she had reached a limit of faith in herself. When layoffs came to Pacific Bell, Julia wasn't protected by status like her manager. She wasn't fired. They eased her out, giving her less and less work to do. Eventually, she gave up. After 29 and a half years at Pacific Bell, she accepted a buyout package. It was generous, but she would have rather kept programming. Still, no hard feelings. Never hard feelings. Suddenly, Julia found she had lost her sense of purpose. The one thing that was certain in her life was her mother's declining health. She decided she would go home to Hazelhurst, but still try to maintain some kind of life in California. Quickly, she became overwhelmed by her mother's needs and found it was impossible for her to travel at all. By the time my grandmother died, Julia's longing for and curiosity about the world was answered mainly through postcards and letters that Walter would send from his travels. And then Walter died too. And Julia's making a record of her visit to Vermont in photographs, which she wants more than anything for her album is a picture of a covered bridge. I have a terrible sense of direction, so I take clear instruction from John on where to find the right bridge for my aunt. It turns out that the right bridge is on our way to Virgin's, a small town where I plan to take Julia for lunch. But we were talking so much that I missed a turn for the bridge, not just once, but twice. I'm embarrassed, but my aunt laughs and brushes it off. It's clear who is a driver in your family, she teases. 
The cafe is authentic Vermont, pristine, sloping wood floors, bright colors, modest decorations, sandwiches with clever names, fluffy breads and cakes in the display case. My aunt describes herself as an observer, so I make sure we find a table near a window. A clean rectangle of light hits the table at the in the center. A more suitable backdrop for an afternoon of reminiscing I could not have invented. You're brave, you know, my aunt says. What do you mean? I still feel a sting of embarrassment over not having been able to find the bridge. <laughs> Look at you. You married outside of race. You moved all the way up here to Vermont. I'm astonished. I've never looked at my life this way. In fact, for years, I used to chastise myself for my very conventional life decisions, down to depending on my husband to drive me and our children around. But I don't want to contradict my aunt. I am enjoying this alternate lens through which to view my choices, plus her story of my life belongs to her, not me. I tell her how odd I am by her stories and all she has lived through. She says there's nothing so great about coming full circle, winding up in the place you once longed to escape. She looks out of the window and then back at me. Sometime before it's all over, she says, I would just like to know what my life was for. That's it. Thank you. Hard to Thank you.